Amen. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2 as we continue our series for this Christmas season. Um, This morning, as we kicked off last week, I mentioned, you know, each week we're going to be talking about uh, not just a movie. We're looking at the text of Scripture, but we're using uh, Christmas movies, one of my favorite things, as a way to illustrate uh, some of these concepts in Scripture. And so I had a couple people ask me what movie we're going to do this morning, and uh, I think, Cody, you mentioned Die Hard. Uh, we're not doing Die Hard this morning. And by the way, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I'm going to put that on the record. Uh, Victoria thought maybe we were doing Home Alone 2 or 1 because I watched that a couple nights ago. We're not doing Home Alone either. Those are great, great Christmas movies. There's so many we could do. Uh, but instead, we're going to talk about and illustrate our text this morning with one of my favorite, another one of my favorite Christmas movies, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Okay? So, and when I think about How the Grinch Stole Christmas, I think about the Jim Carrey one for whatever reason. I know our kids watched the old classic one, and now there's a newer one that they like. Um, but, of course, they're, they're all so good, they kind of tell a similar story. And so, as we think about uh, this time of year, we know we are less than a week away from Christmas. Yesterday was a week uh, from Christmas Day, and I know if you are anything like me, you love this time of year. You love the, the music, you love the movies, the presents, the decorations, lights, trees, all the things that come with it. And so for you, if you're like me, you're like the Who's in Whoville that love the festivities of Christmas time. You love all the lights, all the decorations, everything that comes with Christmas. Uh, You may be like that this morning. Some of you, however, may be more like the Grinch. Uh, Not that you're down in life like he was, but maybe you don't love all the Christmas festivities, which is okay. You don't love the trees and the decorations, and you hate Christmas music, especially when it's played before Thanksgiving. So maybe you're somewhat like that, or maybe you're somewhere in between that as well. But whatever the case is, we think about uh, the movie How the Grinch Stole Christmas. We know the concept that uh, the Grinch didn't like Christmas, he didn't like all the festivities, he didn't love seeing the Whovilles celebrate Christmas, and so he set out on a mission to steal Christmas, to take it away. Uh, And so we know, of course, throughout the movie, he's doing all kinds of things, taking the presents, taking the trees, all of those things. And as we find at the end of the story, what the Who's, as well as the Grinch, realize is that, you know what, even if you take all those festivities, all those fun things away from Christmas that we enjoy, Christmas still comes. You don't steal the heart of what Christmas is about. And so with that in mind, I want us this morning to look at Luke chapter 2. And what we're going to find is that the very first Christmas, what we celebrate this time of year, the true meaning of Christmas, is that birth of Christ. Jesus coming into the world. And we know that when Christ came into the world, there weren't Christmas trees and decorations and Christmas songs like we know today or Christmas movies, any of that that stuff. But Christmas came, right? We see this humble Christmas from the beginning. And the truth is, what we can learn from a passage like this is that whether we get caught up in all the festivities of this time of year or whether we can't stand uh, some of the things of Christmas, the truth is that there's something more important about Christmas than all these festive things. That's not to say we can't enjoy those things, but it's to say that let's not be distracted by some of the extras of Christmas that we lose our focus on what Christmas time is all about. And so as we look to Luke chapter 2 this morning, my My hope is that we will see the true meaning of Christmas and what we celebrate this time of year, that we will strip away in our minds some of those extra things, whether we enjoy them or not, 
and get to the heart of what Christmas is really about here in Luke chapter 2. And so I know this is a familiar passage to most of us. For many of you, you probably read this with your family uh, every Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. But I want us to dive into this passage and not let its familiarity keep us from understanding uh, what is at stake and what we see here, what the challenge from God's Word is. So let's look at Luke chapter 2 this morning. We'll read verses 1 through 20 together. Luke 2, beginning there in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Before we dive into this passage, let's ask that the Lord would open our eyes to his word. Father, we do pray that you would help us to not see this passage as something we read this time of year and not think through or be challenged by. God, I pray you would open your word to us today. That you would challenge us with the humble surroundings of this first Christmas and that Lord you would challenge our hearts to humble ourselves to bow before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords Jesus our Savior so Father open our eyes open our hearts today and may you challenge us to live for you to proclaim the good news of the gospel and truly to look past some of the things of Christmas to the the heart of what Christmas is truly about what we celebrate And so may you be glorified in our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we consider this passage, as we seek to, in some ways, be like the Grinch this morning, strip away all of the extras, all the festivities of Christmas, I want us, as we dive through this passage, to see three humble aspects of this first Christmas, three humble aspects of Jesus' birth. And the first one we see in verses 1 through 5 is a humble birthplace. 
a humble birthplace. We see here just the laying out of the events leading up to Jesus being born, and we see this humble birthplace of Jesus. Mary is pregnant with Jesus, and we see there in the first couple of verses that there's a census that's going to take place. And so because of this, Joseph, who's from Bethlehem, being that he's a descendant of David, he and Mary, who it says uh, here in Scripture that they're betrothed, likely they are married at this time, but they have not consummated that marriage. And so that's why we see that term betrothed. And so Joseph, with Mary, they go to Bethlehem because of this census. This was very common in this day and age to, instead of having a census where you live, to go maybe where you owned property or where you were from. And so they set out to Bethlehem. It's amazing that Bethlehem, the, the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And it was a region that produced a lot of grain that would be used in making bread in that time. And it's fitting as we see that Jesus, as we know, would become the bread of life, be born there in the house of bread. The town of Bethlehem has actually a rich history throughout the Old Testament. Many times when we hear the name Bethlehem, we think automatically of where Jesus was born. But it's actually the name Bethlehem and the, the town is mentioned more in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. So there's a rich heritage of things happening in Scripture there in Bethlehem. In fact, Jacob's wife, Rachel, they were heading toward Bethlehem. And on the way to Bethlehem, she went into labor. She had her son, Benjamin and died in childbirth and was buried just outside of Bethlehem. There was also a judge in the book of Judges uh, from the town of Bethlehem. If you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you know that uh, Naomi was from Bethlehem. She left with her husband. They went to Moab. Her sons married two daughters, one of those daughters being Ruth. And after her husband, Naomi's husband, and uh, her two sons, one one being Ruth's husband, after they died, They went back to Bethlehem. That's where Ruth met Boaz. They got married and had had children. And eventually Jesse, who was David's uh, father, was the grandson of Boaz and uh, Ruth. And so we see this heritage. And this is why David, the, the main reason we see Bethlehem in Scripture is because it's where David was from. It's David's hometown, being that he's a descendant of Ruth and Naomi. And if we go further down, we know throughout Scripture that Joseph was a direct descendant of David. And so that's where Joseph was from. And that's why we see him going back to this town of Bethlehem, his hometown, to be registered there with Mary. Could be likely as well that Joseph and Mary knew the prophecy of Micah 5 too. We, we see this prophecy in the Old Testament predicting where the Messiah would be born. And it says in Micah 5 too, but you... O Bethlehem, Ephratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So it could be that as Joseph and Mary made their way, as Mary is pregnant uh, very far along, it could be that part of them going, they knew this would fulfill the prophecy of what God had prophesied, that this Messiah, this ruler, who would be from old, from ancient days, a picture of Christ's eternality would be born here in Bethlehem. But when it came to the current state of Bethlehem at this time, even though there was a rich history, a rich heritage throughout the Old Testament, it was a pretty insignificant little town, pretty small little town. But of course we know that wouldn't be the case for long. Out of all the magnificent places that Jesus could come, that the Messiah could come, that God 
being made flesh could step into our world, Bethlehem probably wouldn't have been anywhere even on the list of places to be born. And yet this was not by accident. God, in entering human form, chose this small town, this seemingly insignificant, humble place to enter into our world. We see the sovereignty of God in orchestrating all these events in the passage too. I don't want us to miss this, that even though there's a decree that goes out from the government, even though uh, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius are probably thinking, hey, we're, we're making this determination to have this census, we see that God is orchestrating even these decisions of the government to lead to the events of Christ coming and being born in Bethlehem. So throughout this, we see God orchestrating these events that Mary would come along with, uh, with Joseph. And of course, while they're there in Bethlehem, Jesus would be born. And so of all the places that God would choose for Jesus to be born and to enter the world, he chose this small town of Bethlehem. Why not a palace or a castle in Jerusalem or some other place? Instead, we see this humble birthplace that God would, would humble himself coming in human form and would come to this small, seemingly insignificant town of Bethlehem. And so we see this humble birthplace where Jesus was born. But verses 6 and 7, we see, we could call it a humble birthday. A humble birthday. Uh, we see the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And we see that they're less than ideal, right? Look at verses 6 and 7 again. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So here we see the environment surrounding Jesus' birth. Not only is he born in a very humble town, the events surrounding him coming into the, birth, into the world in his birth are less than ideal. In fact, Really, the poorest of children in our day and age today in America are born under better circumstances than this. He wasn't born in a hospital. He didn't have nurses and doctors checking in on him, making sure he was doing okay, monitoring his health. He wasn't even born in a house or an inn. This word inn simply means a guest room. There's no room as everyone's crowding to Bethlehem to register for this census and likely on the journey having a pregnant woman it would have been slow going. Just like when you take a trip, if you've got kids, you know it might be an eight-hour trip, but if you've got kids, add a couple hours, right? Imagine a pregnant woman coming on a donkey and how that would have slowed things down and put them behind getting there and finding a place to stay. And so as they get there, there's no room. And so we see them uh, here in the passage. Jesus is born in a stable. We, we typically think of and as we picture this in our minds, we think of the stable being a, a wooden barn of some sort like we would have today. But in actuality, in this day and age, it may have very well been a cave. A small cave that animals gathered in, that they kept animals in. And so here in this cold, smelly cave, God enters into the world. Not anything like what we would see a child entering into today. Son of God's coming into the world, and because of the animals there, he's born in this cold, dank, dark, smelly cave. So we see Mary wraps Jesus in swaddling clothes, would have been a very common practice in those days. And then Jesus, the Son of God, is laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. There's no crib, there's no bed. He's laid in a feeding trough, maybe even made of stone. 
And so we see these less than ideal circumstances. If a child was born in these circumstances today, you can be sure that the Department of Social Services would be on the case and they would be taking that child out of that situation. And yet this, these are the circumstances in which God chose. And again, we see His sovereignty throughout. This is not an accident. God is purposefully cho- choosing to enter the world in these humble means. We get so used to hearing these events surrounding Jesus' birth that we don't really think about the significance of it. But some of you probably remember several years ago now when uh, Prince uh, William and Kate Middleton were having their first child. And even over here in America, we don't really uh, have as much stock in the royals and all that, but even over here, the publicity surrounding uh, their son being born was just outrageous, right? And some people were following it, tracking it. Now, can you imagine... Imagine if Prince William and Kate were visiting a small town. They were out visiting. She was far along. And while they were there, because there were so many people gathered because of them being there, they didn't have a place to stay. And she went into labor and she was born in a, in a stable with animals. And Prince George was laid in a manger. Can you imagine the publicity that would be? I mean, there was already so much publicity surrounding, surrounding his birth. But can you imagine the outrage that everybody would be having that he was born this prince under these circumstances. And yet we see again that this is the way, this is the means by which God chose to enter into the world. These humble surroundings. He doesn't come as a prince born in a palace, but instead as a small child born in a stall. When we stop and think about God even coming at all, we see how much He humbled Himself. That God who is eternally existent, who is worshipped in heaven, would step out of heaven into our world at all. We see the humility of it. Jesus puts on human flesh with its limitations. When Christ was born, because of clothing Himself in humanity, He would have gotten hungry and had to eat. He would have gotten thirsty and needed something to drink. He would have gotten cold and needed to be clothed. Here we see God who is the source of love, mercy, and grace becoming a man. God who is self-existent and eternal has a birthday. He's born. God who is self-sufficient and in need of nothing to survive became a little baby that was totally dependent upon his mother and father. God who is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful, he's So powerful he could speak the universe into existence. Takes the form of this little baby that doesn't even have the power to support its own head. God who is omnipresent becomes restricted to this little body. God who is omniscient. Meaning he knows everything. Had to still in his humanity learn to walk. Learn to talk. Learn to read and write. He had to even learn to be potty trained. God who is infinite humbled Himself and limited Himself by becoming a human. And so we see Jesus humbly becoming a human and as He came, He came under, came, came under less than ideal circumstances. And the purpose of Him coming was to show us the way to have a relationship, to restore that relationship with the Father. He was, wasn't born as a prince separate from those who were poor and needy. He wasn't born as an elite looking down upon others. Instead, he came as a child 
poor and needy himself. And we see throughout his life this humility was existent. Throughout his ministry, he humbled himself. We see the beautiful picture of him humbling himself and washing the disciples' feet in the book of John. We see ultimately that humility reached its peak when Jesus humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross. In Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, it says of Jesus that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That means to be cling to. He didn't say, I'm God, I'm equal with God. I'm not going to humble himself. Instead, it says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see the entire purpose of Jesus coming to earth was the purpose of living a perfect, sinless life to then die in our place on the cross. What a beautiful picture of God, instead of pouring His wrath out on sinful mankind as He very well could have, instead He steps into humanity. He lives a sinless life so that He can essentially take yours and my life. Think about this. We are sinners. The life we live is a life of sin. And Jesus lives a life of perfect righteousness. And then what He says is, you know what? If you will trust me by faith, if you will trust the fact that I died, then my righteous life, I'll exchange it for your sinful one. I'll take your sinful life and I'll die as though you were the one being punished. I'll bear God's wrath as though it were you. And in exchange, you will receive my righteous life. This is what God did for us. This is what Jesus' coming was about. That he who knew no sin would be sin for us so that we can be the righteousness of God. He died bearing God's wrath, rising again so that we can have eternal life if we will trust Him, if we will humble ourselves and put our faith in Him to save us. And so we see this is the true meaning of Christmas. That Christ would humble Himself, that He would humble Himself in coming, that He would experience that humility throughout His life, and then He would humbly die in our place. And so we see this humble birthday, these humble events surrounding Jesus' birth. But lastly, I want us to look at the humble birth announcement, verses 8 through 20. As these events take place, we could see God announcing throughout the world. He could have had enough angels to spread across the world to tell every single person alive the good news of what had happened, that Jesus was in the world. But instead, what do we see? In verses 8 through 20, we see these angels telling shepherds, outside of Bethlehem. And they encourage these shepherds to be the ones to tell the good news to others. Warren Wiersbe says this, Why shepherds? Why not priests or scribes? By visiting the shepherds, the angel revealed the grace of God towards mankind. Shepherds were really outcasts in Israel. Their work not only made them ceremonially unclean, but it kept them away from the temple for weeks at a time so that they could not be made clean. Then he says this, God does not call the rich and mighty. He calls the poor and lowly. So God chooses to announce this news of Jesus coming to these insignificant, really outcasts of society, these shepherds. No one, shepherds were so looked down upon that even in the court of law, they wouldn't even consider 
their uh, voice as being a, a witness towards whatever had happened. They were so looked down upon, and yet these are the ones to whom Jesus' birth is announced. So again, we see God's demonstrating His compassion to the poor, to the outcast, to the society to whom He came to save. We see this throughout His life and ministry. In Matthew 9, 1-14, through 14, it talks about uh, Jesus. It says, Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and His disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to His disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, that is Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And then he says this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We see this especially in the Gospel of Luke. Luke as we see, the purpose statement is that Jesus came, the Son of Man came, to seek and to save that which is lost. And so we see this theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus seeking and saving the lost. Seeking and saving those who realize that they're sinners. I, I invite you to probably turn just a couple pages to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I want, it, want you to see this encounter that Jesus has. I read this passage a few weeks ago during my devotional time and was just really struck with the mercy and the grace of Jesus. Luke 7, beginning there in verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So the Pharisees asking Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he's talking about Jesus, if Jesus were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And in verse 41, he says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this encounter of Jesus. And it is a challenge to my heart as well, because... 
How many of us, and I would say myself included, how many of us are like this Pharisee? That we look down upon those, we say, if Jesus knew who he was dealing with here, he would not, he would not have anything to do. She's a sinner. We're so prone in our self-righteousness to look down upon others. And Jesus says, those are the people I came to save. Those who are forgiven much. And I was challenged by this passage, and in light of what we see here in the humble birth of Christ, I pray we're challenged as well that Christ came to save those who are sinners, and the reality is we're all sinners, right? Even this Pharisee, whether he realized it or not, was a sinner. Had Jesus fellowshiped with him, he would have been eating with a sinner as well. But what's the difference between the Pharisee and the woman? The woman humbled herself. She knew who she was. She knew she was a sinner. She threw herself upon the mercy and grace of Christ. Whereas the Pharisee in his self-righteousness didn't see his need for a Savior. It reminds me of another passage later in Luke, in Luke 18, that Jesus talks about a parable. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the beauty of the gospel, of Christ coming in humility. Not to those of us who we think we're pretty good. Those of us who look down on others and say, you know what, thank you that I'm not like that person. I go to church. I give. I do all these good things. Instead, Christ came to those of us who will humble ourselves, who will realize, just like that tax collector, that we would pray to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God chooses the least likely of people to share the gospel with, those who will humble themselves, those who will see their need for a Savior and will come to Him for mercy. And so we see this beauty in Luke 2. Because the very people Jesus comes to are those humble shepherds that are outcasts of society. And what is the mission that he gives them and that the angels tell them? Go and tell others what has happened. This is a beautiful picture of those of us who've trusted Christ as Savior. If we've humbled ourselves and we've trusted him by grace, then our call is to go and to share this good news with others, to tell others. Jesus calls each of us who have trusted him to tell of this good news, to, to share Especially this time of year, we can share these humble circumstances of Christ coming and the purpose of Him coming to die for those who will humble themselves, turn from their sin, and trust Jesus' provision for them. So we see, as we wrap up, the picture of, again, the movie, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And at the end of the movie, he takes all the presents, he takes all the trees, the lights, the decorations... And he's up there at the top of Mount Crumpet. He's ready to dump everything off. And he's ready because 
Christmas morning is here, and he's waiting on the who, who's of Whoville to come out and to say boo-hoo. But what happens instead? They come out and they sing. And I don't know what they're singing because it's some uh, Dr. Seussian language that they're singing, but they're singing, right? Because Christmas came and the Grinch realizes it. He says, wait a minute, I took all this away and Christmas came. He even acknowledges that it came without presents, decorations, uh, came without all these things. And yet, it still came. It came, and then he realized, as his heart grew three sizes, that Christmas perhaps means a little bit more than all these things this time of year. And so, I want to challenge us as we consider Luke chapter 2. Again, not to say that we should go home and take away all our presents and trees and lights and that's it. But instead, I want to challenge us as we strip away all these extra things of Christmas. May we see the heart of what Christmas is about. That God would humble himself, step into our world, live a life of humility to the point of humbling himself to die on a cross so that he could save those of us who humble themselves who realize our need for a Savior. Just as we talked about last week, that we would humble ourselves as a child and dependently trust in Christ alone to save us. Not trusting our goodness, not trusting our righteousness. That would be to say, Jesus, thanks for coming and all, but really, you didn't have to come. I've got this. I'm good. I can go to church. I can do all these things. You could have done all those things whether Christ came or not. But the fact that He came and the fact that He died shows that all of us are in need of salvation. All of us the Bible says, fall short of this standard of God's glory. Falling short of giving Him glory throughout our life and living in perfect obedience. And so I pray we meditate upon the good news this time of year. of Jesus coming to save us. And I pray as believers, we would be challenged as well to share this good news with others. That once we've humbled ourselves, as Jesus t- shares the story of that woman... And he gives he the parable of the one that was forgiven more. What he says is, hey, the one that's forgiven more is going to love more, right? The reality is not that this woman was forgiven more than the Pharisee. The reality is she understood how much she had been forgiven. And may we meditate upon that ourselves, too. May we meditate upon all that God has forgiven us. Our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven if we put our faith in Christ. And may we grow in a love for the Lord and a desire to share that good news with others as we meditate upon God's forgiveness for us. So I want to close with this verse. And we're going to sing uh, as we close. And, and I pray that we would sing. We're going to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And just as we meditate upon the goodness of Christ's coming, may we, just like the Who's in Whoville, sing. May we worship the Lord. They're singing, and of course, throughout the movie, they're not focused on really what the true meaning of Christmas is, just that it came. We know Christmas is about Christ coming into the world And so we're going to sing as we wrap up. But I want to leave us with this verse in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. If we've trusted Christ as Savior, no matter our life circumstances, we truly are rich because we're rich in God's mercy and grace for us. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, we are humbled at the reality that Christ would come at all, that Jesus would step into our world to save us. 
Lord, you could have left us on our own, left us to deal with our own sin and the consequences of it, and yet in your grace and in your mercy, you humbled yourself. And even the circumstances surrounding, surrounding Jesus' birth show that humility. You came to save those of us who will humble ourselves. That will not think that we are wise in our own eyes, that we know better, that we're good, that we're righteous in our own strength, but instead, God, we would be like that tax collector who would just cry out to you, God, be merciful to us as sinners. And God, we see the richness of your mercy and grace in Jesus' birth and his life, his death, his resurrection for us. So God, I pray as we're here today, if there's anyone that has not yet humbled themselves to the point of trusting Christ by faith, that today would be the day that they cry out to your mercy and grace through Jesus. And for those of us who do know you, may you challenge our hearts to meditate upon the forgiveness we have in Christ, and may it motivate us to sharing this good news with others. So God, we give you all the praise for your work, the fact that you've called us as poor and needy sinners to experience your grace and mercy through Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name.